Follow Me is the third installment in our Life of Christ series. In this series, we are looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus and have our lives reflect His glory. We will be looking at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. If you are interested in knowing more about Jesus, Christianity, or our community of faith at Christ Church at Grove Farm, I encourage you to reach out to us on our website, ccgf.org. Our pastors and staff would love to connect with you and assist you in your walk with Christ. Here's the message from this week. Grace and peace to you. Father, thank you for the welcome that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And as today we come into this place and there are people who are with us for the first time or the second time, I pray that they would, in turn, from us receive the hospitality of Jesus. They'd feel welcome. And they would have a sense of a place here, a sense of purpose and belonging. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given us. And I pray that that would be reflected in our interactions with one another. Lord, as we um, also just think about our brother, Pastor Ed, and his family, we pray for them as they mourn the loss of Sally. We pray, Lord, for Ed as he heals up from his surgery. Please, Lord, bless him and, and comfort him in this time. God, as we look at your word now, teach us through the words of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this time together gathering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my family just returned from a beach vacation. We're beach people. We really enjoy uh, going to the water and the sand and all that stuff. And uh, one of the, the, the elements of vacation that I really enjoy is the early morning time. Some of you are like that too. I like it because no one else is awake, just me. And I'll get to go see the sunrise. It's quiet. I'll have some time with the Lord, reading the scriptures. And I like to go on a bicycle ride early in the morning too. My goal usually is about 25 miles a day. Some of you are like hardcore riders and you do way more than that, but for me, that's pretty good, 25 miles a day. And there's a path that I have literally done probably a thousand miles on at this particular beach where we go. And I was riding on that beach early in the week of our, of our vacation week. And, um, you know, there gets to be a certain point of day after I've seen the sunrise where people start to come out. And there's a lot of joggers, there's a lot of walkers, there's other cyclists, there's, there's golf carts. There's all kind of traffic happening around that path. So you have to pay attention to make sure you're not going to hit anyone. Actually, I just come through a place where there was a beach access and there was a guy who wasn't paying attention. And I had to scream on the brake so I didn't run into this guy. But thankfully, I evaded him. And once I got past him, there was a clear path ahead of me. And so I started to pedal a little harder, pick up some more speed, right? Next thing I know, I am flying over the handlebars, and I landed about 10 feet from my bicycle. And I'm thinking, what in the world just happened? So I look back, and across the sidewalk, I'm like, am I okay? I didn't break anything, thankfully, but I'm bleeding and hurting. And, and I look back, and there is a fire hose with water pumping through it draped across the path. And it got me. I didn't see it at all. It like blended in. It was the same color as the path. I was so frustrated. Well, thankfully, the guy that I almost hit came running toward me to help me out. Well, he almost tripped over that same fire hose. A cyclist, there's a cyclist that comes by. He's watching me. He almost wrecked on the same fire hose. Moral of the story, be careful if you are following me because you may end up inheriting the earth as I did. I inherited the earth. Talk about inheriting the earth. It was scary. Jesus has famously said, follow me. In the Gospels, 13 times, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 13 times, Jesus says, follow me. Simple words, powerful words, packed words. I wanna show you just a couple examples. 
just to kind of get you, you thinking about this idea. We're going to be looking at the idea of following Jesus during the next couple of months here. We're excited about this. Look at Matthew 4, 18 and 19. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Follow me. In a different context, here's what Jesus says in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. These words are important. And I wonder this. I wonder, what does it mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? This is what we're going to be reflecting on. I, I pray that you will not just reflect on it briefly, but as we go through these weeks, we progress through this series in your own personal time, you will reflect for the first time or anew on this idea, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? You know, I, I think for starters... It means that we're different. Someone who follows Jesus is called to be different. You know, um, I noticed in the teenage vernacular, people talk about being built different. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll reference themselves and they'll say, I'm just built different. You know, this kind of like a self, you know, uh, deprecating or maybe self-enhancing kind of way of talking about your own personhood. I'm built different. Well, the Christian should be built different. There should be a, a different kind of sense of meaning in our lives. There should be a different degree of love in the life of a follower of Jesus. There should be a different degree of peace, a different degree of hope in the person who follows Jesus. I'm submitting to you that the person who follows Christ should be different. But here's the question. Are we different? I mean, I've been reflecting on that question this week myself. Am I different? Are we different? And I think there's like degrees there, right? It's by degree we measure, not, not, not black and white. There's like degrees of being different, growing in the personhood of Jesus, growing in our sense of understanding what it means to follow him. Are you different? This is an essential theme of the Bible, by the way. This idea of being different. Uh, God calls out in the scriptures, early in the Bible, a people for himself. He calls out a people for himself. He references it as a family. He calls it a household. He has established and called forth a people to himself. And that people is to be different, holy. Be holy as I am holy is what God says. That people is to be holy, set apart from the world, to belong to him, to obey him, to be different. If you're going to follow Jesus, it certainly means we have to kind of wrestle with this idea of what it means to be different. You know, I think perhaps some of the most stinging words that might come to a person of faith, a person who claims to follow Jesus would be, well, you're no different than anyone else. Anyone ever said that to you? You're no different than anyone else. Or maybe you've heard people talk about that about the church or Christians. You're no different than anyone else. I mean, have you seen like divorce statistics? For Christians and for unbelievers, they're the same. 
they would say, you're no different than anyone else. But listen, the Christian is called to be different if you follow Jesus. Different than the irreligious, people who, who, who don't embrace any kind of faith. Different than the religious, if you know what I mean. Different than just people who go through the motions and go to church. We are called to be that people. So we're looking at the, the Sermon on the Mount during this series, Life of Christ, Follow Me. And we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which comes from Matthew chapter 5 verse, um, through chapter 7. So if you want to read ahead during these next couple of months, you can look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 because we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount there. And this is perhaps some of Jesus' most famous, most widely known teaching. It's very, it's very much something that people know about, these words of Christ. But I would submit to you that they're also some of the least understood words of Jesus. I'm talking about myself here. And I think you could probably identify with that if you're really being honest with yourself. We know these words, but do we really truly understand them? I pray that will happen. I'll say this to you. The Sermon on the Mount, which we're beginning today, is Jesus' own description of what he wants his followers to be and to do. That's what we're going to see during these next nine weeks. So buckle up, hold on, it's going to be great. These are a collection of teachings. Now, you're, you're hearing a sermon right now, a sermon. The, the Sermon on the Mount is most likely a collection of teachings. Maybe Jesus, like, took his disciples on a retreat for a few days. It's a collection of teachings from, from that period. Or maybe he took them over the course of months away and he taught them. The Sermon on the Mount is actually several collections, uh, several teachings, a collection of teachings. And, and I imagine that, that these took a while for these disciples to process as well, so you're not in poor company there. Let's take a look at this teaching on the hill. It's meant to instruct our character, and it's teaching that is intended to speak to your heart. Okay, let's do it. Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Follow along on a, a smartphone or a tablet or whatever you might have. Take some notes. Let's begin with the words of Jesus. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him. Man, let's come to the feet of Jesus right now. Let's sit in front of him. Let's sit at his feet. And he began to teach them. I pray he'll teach us. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, um, these are called the Beatitudes, this collection of scriptures. Maybe it says that in your Bible. It says, in my heading here, the Beatitudes in bold print. And that word Beatitudes comes from a Latin word. The Latin word is Beatus. I don't know if my Latin pronunciation is very good. Beatus, which means blessed. And so the Beatitudes re refer to blessedness. In fact, if you look at, at the entire section here we're going to read, every sentence that Jesus speaks begins with the word blessed. These are a state of blessedness. You know, today there's a lot of help, a lot of talk about mental health. You've probably seen this in the news or and web searches you've done, you've come across this. And, and I think it's an important emphasis, mental health. And we talk about mindfulness, and we talk about self-care and all these things. I believe that this is Jesus' response. In his time, in his way, it could be, his response to the idea of mental health. 
Because here's what Jesus, and we'll talk more about this. Jesus is addressing inner issues right now. He's not talking about the externals. We'll talk more about that too. He's talking about internal things. So if you're someone who's, who's struggling with mental health or wondering about that, pay attention to these words. These words will be more helpful to you than any self-care, certainly. This is Jesus' care. This will be more helpful to you than, than any kind of mindfulness. These are the words of Jesus. And I believe he's speaking to the one who says, you know, I'm struggling with my mental health. So he says, listen, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is really an attitude towards ourselves. And that blessedness, by the way, the blessedness of Jesus, it's an inner satisfaction that comes not from outward circumstances, but, but comes from inward place, an inward place, and it really dictates and directs our happiness, our peace, our joy, our bliss. That's what Jesus is talking about. And the first thing he talks about, interestingly enough, is our attitude towards ourselves. Now, the fact that he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, is an interesting way for us to begin to address ourselves. It seems kind of negative. But no, it's not negative because it actually gets coupled with something very important. This idea of being poor in spirit, by the way, is not speaking to a physical poverty. Jesus certainly cares for the physically, the materially impoverished person. We see that reflected in the scriptures. But what we're seeing here is him talking about spiritual matters. These beatitudes, once again, they speak to internal things. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what does that mean? I'll give you a cross-reference. If you look at Psalm 34, verse 6, I think it gives us some insight. Here's what Psalm 34, verse 6 says. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. You know, Psalm 34 was written by King David. Not someone who would have been materially poor. Not someone who was impoverished. And so when he says, this poor man, he's not referring to, to his, his material state. No, he's referring to his spiritual state. Even King David, one who had a heart after God, found himself in places where he recognized just how impoverished he was within. You know, we worship in the uh, Anglican tradition here at Christ Church. You're gonna see that in a moment when Pastor Mike leads us in communion. You've seen a little bit in the liturgy reflected there. There are little flourishes of it. Well, Anglicans use a resource for worship and for prayer called the Book of Common Prayer. Some of you have heard of that. By the way, I encourage you to pick a copy of it up. It's rich language. In the Book of Common Prayer, there are, there are prayers of confession. We pray one of them every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock in our first service here. And that prayer says, it says, We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. It's a way of expressing that we are impoverished in spirit, that we are poor in spirit. There's another book of common prayer, Confession, that says that we bewail our manifold sin. I love that language, by the way, because it's not language that I would typically use. I don't often use the word bewail in my conversations, do you? But when I read it, it makes me reflect on what does that mean? It gives me a fresh like cut at, at, at my own sinfulness and understanding the depravity of my, my own soul. The Anglicans say that they take a high view of our sin. A high view of our sin. In other words, we don't treat it lightly. 
We understand that we're sinful. We come before God in this posture that says, I am poor in spirit. Tell you what, when you pray those prayers, when you hear these words, a, a, a check for you would be this. Do you just blow that off and say, well, not today. I feel pretty good. I'm in a good place. I'm not so impoverished today. I got a little more in my account. Is that how you respond to that? You kind of blow by those words and think, yeah, at one point that was me. Or maybe you never thought that was you. Listen, this is important. Our attitude towards ourselves that Jesus calls us to is one of incredible humility. And that's understanding that we are impoverished in spirit. We are poor. We are destitute in spirit. I've been to some places, maybe some of you have, through my missions trips or in the city of Pittsburgh, where I have seen incredible depth of poverty. I've been in places where people don't have any any sewage or running water or electricity. I've been in places where families crowd into one little tiny mattress and all sleep in the same place with dirt floors. That's, that's poverty. It's most like deep human level. That's the kind of spiritual poverty. Give yourself a mental picture of who you and I are. But here's the great news about it. If you can recognize that that's who you are, there's hope for you because God's grace is more amazing than your spiritual impoverishment. That's the great news here. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the blessing comes because when you can recognize that you are indeed poor in spirit, that you can then begin to embrace the great, incredible love, mercy, grace, salvation of Jesus Christ. You hear that? So, so I'd ask you this question before we go on to the next set of verses here. Like, have you come to grips with that? That you are spiritually impoverished. That you are spiritually poor. Not once, but that's who you are as, as a person who has flesh and blood. You're broken. But you don't have to like be in the doldrums about that because there's hope because of the grace of God. I pray that, that you would reflect on that. And you would take that posture because that is the beginning of all this state of blessedness is understanding that you and I are poor in spirit. The scripture continues. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, Jesus was speaking to an audience that included perhaps some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And those religious leaders of the day and the people who were under their teaching, the way they understood blessedness was an external thing. Like if you believe the rules, or if you follow the rules and regulations, if you live to the letter of the law, if you fast enough, if you give enough, right, you, you can be blessed. Well, Jesus is turning all that upside down here. And he's saying, no, blessedness does not come from external things. It's very much something whose source, the source of it, is inward. Blessedness begins inwardly. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. And that's what we see. You know, he says, blessed are those who mourn. And certainly, we just talked about even the Glovers. They're mourning the loss of a loved one. You've mourned the loss of a loved one at some point in your life. 
You know what that's like. And, and yes, there's comfort for those who turn to God in mourning. But this again is speaking of spiritual things. And it's another step from recognizing that you're spiritually poor. It's now saying those who mourn, those who mourn over their sin. Those who are wrecked over the fact that they are broken. That over and over again, they turn away from God. Over and over again, they do the wrong thing. Over and over again, they fail to love God with their whole heart, as we say in the prayer. That's what this is talking about. Mourning over sin. Blessed are those who mourn. You know, it's kind of like this. If you think about like the idea of being poor in spirit as being confession, like I confess my sin, well, then you could think about mourning as an idea of repenting from your sin. It's the next step. It's not just an acknowledgement. This is a sense of saying, and, and not only do I acknowledge that I'm sinful, I'm going to turn in a new direction. I, I'm going to turn in a new way. I'm going to turn away from the way I'm going my way, and I'm going to turn and go the Lord's direction. I'm going to turn back to God. That's what this is saying. Blessed are those who mourn, who repent over their sin. They'll be comforted. Why are you blessed when you mourn over your sin? Because that is the beginning of knowing the love of God through Jesus Christ. When you mourn over your sin, then you can really, really, really know Jesus. When you recognize your impoverished in spirit, then you can really, really know him. And, and it says this, that those who, who mourn over their sin will, will, be, will, will, will be met with this spirit of meekness. Like, this idea of mourning over your sin, confessing your sin, acknowledging it, brings about meekness. What's meekness? Well, I have a definition written down here. Meekness is being humble and gentle in your attitude towards others. And that humble and gentle attitude towards others is informed by our own understanding that we are poor in spirit. In other words... When you recognize just how much you need God, just how much you are dependent on him, just how broken you are, poor in spirit, and you mourn over your own sin, it produces in you a patience, a grace, a gentleness with everyone else around you. Because you see just how desperate you are for the mercy and grace of God. Again, the Book of Common Prayer, there's a phrase in there I really like, and it says that we are miserable, miserable offenders. Miserable offenders. I would never again say that. But when I read them, I'm like, yeah. Miserable offenders. The good news is when I, when I recognize and mourn over my sin, it brings about a, a meekness in me that blesses other people around me and also meets me with the grace of Jesus. And you know what else happens? When you are mourning over your sin, when you, when, you, when you mourn over the fact that you are impoverished in spirit, you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like you've got to have God. I know people like that. I'm looking out in this congregation. I'm like, oh yeah, that person hungers and thirsts for Jesus. They want more of him. Because they recognized that nothing in this world could ever meet their hunger. Nothing in this world could ever quench their thirst. Nothing in this world would ever satisfy other than Jesus, all the money in the world, all the beach trips in the world, all the whatever, all the fancy meals in the world, nothing else will ever satiate that deepest need 
that I am a sinner and I need the goodness of God in my life. I pray, I pray that you will have a hunger, a hunger for Jesus, a hunger for the righteousness of God. I pray that you will actually figure out that there's nothing else that's gonna meet the need, that deepest desire inside of you. I pray that we as a church are known for that. That we're a group of people that are poor in spirit, who mourn over a sin and, and are met by the grace of God and are so spiritually hungry and thirsty that it results in this incredible peace and hope and grace and power through the Spirit in us. That's the kind of church that we desire to see here at Christ Church. Be a part of that. Seek God together. Man, this is good stuff. Let's keep on going here. I'm so fired about these verses. This series is gonna be rich, I think. Let's keep going here. Um, verse seven, eight, and nine, okay? So Jesus continues in the Beatitudes. He says, listen, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I wanna point this out. There are eight Beatitudes, if you go through and reread this, you'll see there's eight Beatitudes, and uh, hey, they're not meant to be taken a la carte. Like some of you are like, okay, so I'm, I'm good at meekness, or yeah, I'm good at this one, and I'm just gonna kind of pick and choose, and like, I like the way this one fits on me. No, it's a, it's a package deal. This is meant to be lived faith, and Jesus is putting out there markers of those who follow him. You follow Jesus, this is what we look like. This is why I say it's like the least understood part. Because we don't often reflect this. We, we struggle with this. They're a package deal, what you see here. And a part of the package deal is this. We see here that this impacts our attitude toward the world. If, if we looked at our attitude towards ourselves, we talked about like the impoverished spirit, poor in spirit. If we looked at our attitude towards our sins, we consider mourning over our sin and, and the meekness and the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, then this section is speaking to our attitude towards our world. And here's what we're called to. We're called to mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, mercy is compassion for people who are in need. Mercy is compassion for people who are in need. Think about that. God is merciful. And he is continually showing mercy to me. He's continually showing mercy to you. Have mercy on us is what we say to God. And listen, he has called us as benefactors, as beneficiaries, as people who receive his mercy. He has called us to also be merciful to others. This is a mark of the person who follows Jesus. There's a trail of mercy you know what that means? You can't insulate yourself from the problems of other people. We can't, we can't like this, you know, sequester ourselves away from that, go up on a mountain somewhere and be away. No, we need to be in the world and God will use us who have received his mercy to also pour out his mercy on other people. We'll do that through showing the hope of the gospel, through acts of service and love, all the above. We show acts of mercy. We are called to be a people of mercy. And, and this is what, it says the pure in heart, this is what the pure in heart do. The pure in heart show mercy. They're connected. I love the interrelatedness of all this. And that pure of heart, it, it signifies a sincerity. 
It signifies a lack of hypocrisy. You know, hypocrisy is the idea of play acting. You know, you put on a mask and you act a certain way, but really, you're an entirely different way. Some of us struggle with that. Well, Jesus says, no, no, you are called to be pure in heart, sincere, showing integrity. And if you have integrity, if you are pure in heart, then you will be a person who is merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Not only that, you will be a peacemaker because you're called to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's huge. We're called to be peacemakers within this church. Listen, if you have something against someone in this church, if there's a matter between you, I'm gonna cite the words of Jesus. You can do with that what you want. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. You wanna follow me? Then be a peacemaker. We could have a whole sermon on that. I know that that could be a, a messy thing to work through. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what we're called to is to be people who are peacemakers. That's the work that Jesus calls us to in the church. He calls us to that in the community. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's the blend of, of grace and truth. It demands both of those. But that's who we're called to be. We are to seek our Father and to live and do just as he has done for us. Man, these are challenging. You can see why they are the least understood. They're probably also the least obeyed teachings of Jesus. These are the hard sayings of Jesus, you could say. Follow me is what Jesus says to us. You know, you may be listening to all this and thinking, okay, are these teachings even practical? They're certainly relevant. These are relevant teachings, but you might wonder, are these practical? In other words, can they be practiced? I mean, can I actually do what Jesus is putting out there? On one hand, they're feasible. I think you can allow for that. It seems that all these things could be feasible. But on the other hand, if you're like me, you would say, yeah, my life experience, though, bears out that, that I don't actually do a very good job of doing this. You feel that way? Yeah, they might be feasible, but I fall short on a regular basis. You might say, well, they're not, in, they're not attainable by every person, allowing for some. Or you might say that they're, they're, they're not totally unattainable by any one person. You may have this like philosophical discussion about the nature of the attitudes and, and whether they're practical, whether they can be practiced, but to put them beyond any person's reach is to undermine the teaching of Jesus. You hear me? If you say, well, we can't do that, or you can't do that, that's undermining the purpose of his teaching. These aren't empty words by Jesus. These are words that are meant to inform the way that the person who follows Christ lives, who we are, what we do, remember? So don't put them out of the reach of anyone. The Beatitudes can be lived out. You hear me? It can be lived out. But only, only by those who've experienced new life in Jesus. You will never, I will never, be able to live these out according to my own strength and my own might and my own power. No way. I've tried and I've failed. And I bet you can attest to the same. But by the power of God, if you've experienced the new life of Jesus, there's good, you can live this way. I mean, imagine this. What if the world lived like this? 
This is what God's called us to. This is the mark of those who follow Jesus. You know, um, there's an inner righteousness that's required from all this. And that inner righteousness only comes about one way. It's, it's like Jesus told Nicodemus in the gospel. Some of you remember that story. He said, listen, Nicodemus, you must be born again. New birth is essential. In other words, you must know Jesus. You must die to yourself and be born anew through his power to have any hope of living in this way because you'll never do it on your own. Some of you have experienced that new birth. Some of you, others, have not experienced that new birth. I want to tell you, it's here today for you. This Jesus calls you to new life in him. It begins certain, just by saying, God, I'm impoverished. I, I'm poor in spirit. I mourn over my sin. I mourn over the history of brokenness in my life. I mourn over the, 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 the attitude of my heart. I, I mourn over the state of my life. God, I need you. I need a savior. It begins there. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Why? They'll be comforted. Comforted with the hope of the gospel. If you want that new birth, it's a simple saying that, God, I, I mourn over my sin. God will meet you in that. There's a whole bunch of other people, though, who have had that new birth, but yet, yet, you're struggling to grapple with the idea of, like, how do I live out these beatitudes? It's a little bit like me with my bike wreck when I inherited the earth. Listen, when that happened, the next day I woke up, I was sore, my ribs, I'm cut up, all this stuff. And I'm like, man, I was honestly not just not wanting to get on the bike, I was hurting, I was afraid to get back on the bike. I mean, honestly, it's like I was riding down the road, something I didn't see took me out. It's like that could happen again. I was fearful about it, but I wanted to get on. So I actually went to my family and said, would you pray for me? I'm, I'm afraid, I confessed it. I said, I'm afraid to get back on the bike. I'm afraid I'm gonna have an accident again. And, and they prayed for me, you know what? I prayed and I got back on the bike. I was more aware. I was trying to play closer attention. I probably slowed down a little bit, but I got back on the bike. Some of you today, that's your step. Get back on the bike. Dust yourself off. Wipe off the blood and get back on the bike by God's grace and begin to pursue this life of knowing Jesus, of living out the, the power of God through the Spirit in you, in your life. I pray you'll get back up. I pray you'll get back on the bike and that you will seek Jesus, to know him inwardly and that your life and my life and the life of this church would reflect it to the world. We're gonna, we're gonna give you every week at the end of these sermons um, questions to reflect on. I've got a cluster of questions. I want to show them to you now. A cluster of questions to reflect on. And, and my hope is this. Like, these are easy maybe to answer just in a moment. It's not meant to be like that. These are meant to be questions for reflection. So maybe take a picture of this. I'll wave to you. Hi, everyone. You get a picture of me waving you. Okay. You can, you can write, take a shot of that. You can write them down, whatever you want to do. See my smiling face. Remember, think about these questions. And, like, deeply think about these questions. What are the Beatitudes for you? What are these? Is it, is it conditions that must be met in order for you to go to heaven? Is that what this is? 
I mean, really think about that deeply. Measure your life according to it. Do these, do these beatitudes celebrate the power of God and the life of those who follow Jesus? I, I would encourage you to reflect on that this week. We've actually got a resource that will help you as you do this. We could do this together as a community. We've created a webpage. If you go to ccgf.org forward slash follow me, you'll find there there's a, a place where you can share your story, share your testimony. What does it mean for you to follow Jesus? What have you learned about following Jesus? What do these beatitudes mean to you? Share that with us. This is going to be fun. I can't wait to get on there myself and share and to read what you share on that. It'll be a fun community experience, and I think we can grow together during this series. I want to pray. We're going to have communion, which is a great way for you to have a reset with the Lord, to come before Jesus. Pastor Mike's will be coming in a moment to lead us in that way. Let's prepare our hearts briefly as we do this. A chance for us to recommit ourselves to following Jesus. Oh, Lord, as we consider the Beatitudes, we know, Lord, we cannot attain this. It is not an external exercise, but an internal one. I pray, Lord, that each of us would follow Jesus, that we would have this new birth, that someone today would say, God, I mourn over my sin. I need a Savior. And they would be comforted by your mercy and grace, Lord. Lord, I pray that that others would say, it's time to get back on the bike. I've been smarting from my injuries. I've been smarting from my own failures. But I'm ready to follow Jesus anew. I pray, Lord, that they would make that commitment to to re-up to get back on the bike and to follow you once more. And I pray, Lord, that as we do, that the meekness of Jesus, that the mercy of Christ, the love of the Father would be manifest in our lives. Teach us your ways, O Jesus. Be with us now as we reflect on him. In Jesus' name, amen.